Welcome to Rockdale Hour. An hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and Dave. We're three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all times and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who've inspired us over the years. Rocktail Hour is an affiliate of Amazon.com. If you're going to buy stuff on Amazon, it would be cool if you would first click on the Amazon.com link on the Rocktail Hour homepage. And Amazon will kick a few bucks back to the Rocktail Hour to help fund this free podcast. In today's episode, Treg is going to tell us the story behind Roundabout by Yes. Yeah, Roundabout by the mighty English progressive rock band Yes. Uh, it's the first single from their 1971 album Fragile, and Roundabout has become one of the best-known songs by Yes. It peaked at number 13 in the U.S. on the Hot 100. And this is a request by listener Mike in Toronto. I uh, exchanged an email with him the other day. He said he was on his way to hear a, a Yes concert and said it would be great if we did a podcast by Yes. And I said, great minds think alike, because I was planning to do so, because they're one of my favorite bands. I didn't know that they were touring. Apparently, they're still playing. Pretty incredible. in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Hmm. So let's talk first about the band. Yes is one of the longest lasting and most successful of the 70s progressive rock groups. I'm a huge fan of these early... British prog rock groups such as Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and the Moody Blues, and Yes, love their music. Great is, sound. Is the Moody Blues, are they considered prog rock? I, I would think so. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yes was formed near the end of the psychedelic rock era when a lot of these prog rock bands were merging rock with classical music, and that certainly comes through in, in Yes's music. Would Elton John be considered crocodile rock? <laughs> Yes was formed in 1968 when John Anderson met bassist Chris Squire. And they learned that they shared some musical interests and decided to form a band. They both played in several different bands, and uh, because of their similar interests, they thought they would join together. So they began to write songs together and to develop a sound that incorporated harmonies into rock music with Squire's bass at its core. They recruited Tony Kay on keyboards, Peter Banks on guitar, and drummer Bill Bruford. They chose the name Yes because they said that it was a sh that it was short, direct, and memorable. The group got some nice breaks early on in 1968. Just just after they formed, they were able to fill in at the Speakeasy Club in London for Sly and the Family Stone, who didn't show up. Later that year, they had developed such a good reputation that they played for Cream at their farewell concert hmm. at the Royal Albert Hall. I thought that was pretty cool. Pretty early in their career, they also opened for Janis Joplin. And then later in their career, they, they opened for Iron Butterfly and Jethro Tull and some other great bands, too. And it helped them, you know, they were playing for similar audiences and it helped them to really develop their reputation. In June of 1970, Peter Banks left the band and he was replaced by guitarist Steve Howe. Through their first three albums, uh, they developed and perfected their signature sound, which Bruce Eder described as complex, multi-part harmonies, loud, heavily layered guitar and bass parts, beautiful and melodramatic drum parts, and surging organ passages, bridging them all. I thought that was a pretty great description of their music. The result, when you put all those elements together, is an amazing musical experience, and it conveys so much imagery and emotion. That's why I fell in love with the Yes. 
Bruce Eder also described Yes's approach to music as follows. He says it's built on compositions that resembled sound paintings rather than songs. The swelling sound of Kay's Moog synthesizer and organ, Howe's fluid yet stinging guitar passages, Squire's rippling bass, and Anderson's haunting falsetto leads all evoked sonic landscapes that were strangely compelling to the imagination of the listener. Tony Kay quit the band in August of 1971, and he was replaced by Rick Wakeman, who was a classically trained pianist, and he was also a flamboyant keyboardist, especially in comparison to Tony Kay. Tony Kay played just a couple of instruments, a couple of synthesizers and organs, and uh, Rick Wakeman had a dozen different instruments that he would play at different times, and quite flamboyant. Many people consider this lineup of Anderson, Squire, Howe, Wakeman, and Bruford as the strongest of the band's various configurations. This was the lineup that recorded Fragile, but it only lasted for one year, and then it, they changed again. That was one thing that was kind of unique about this band, is that they continually were had turnover in personnel. And do you know why that was? They moved on to other projects, as near as I can tell. I heard that... Uh, and this is a long time ago, that a lot of the band members were PhDs in music. Do you know if that's true or not? I hadn't heard that. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm not, I've never corroborated that, but I heard that a lot of them were heavily skilled in classical music. Oh, and I cool. know Wakeman would be in one of them. Um, and I even heard that they were all PhDs. I just never knew if that was yeah. legitimate or not. Well, it would definitely explain why they're such great musicians, for sure. Well, let's talk about the album. Fragile. It was their fourth studio album, and it was released in December 1971. It's comprised of nine tracks. Four of them are group performances, and five of them are solo songs that are written by each of the five members. I found that to be kind of interesting. That Each one of them took a, a different song on the album and, and highlighted their solo work. So they weren't only phenomenal players, but each of them had songwriting prowess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. huh. So the group completed Fragile in less than two months which is no small feat, as beautiful as it is, and, and the uh, musicianship in it is pretty amazing. Well, it's probably because they were all writing their own songs, would you think? I mean, if you've got you know one or two members of the group that are writing all of the songs, it, it would take longer. That's a good point. Fragile uh, reached number seven in England and number four in America. Much of the album's success is attributed to the, to the release of Roundabout, which was the first song that was released as a single. The album version runs 8 minutes 29 seconds, but it was edited to 3 minutes and 27 seconds for release as a single. And I know we've heard that about several of these great long songs that they're cutting them down, but I just find that to be wrong in so many ways, to take this beautiful composition and slice it up and take just bits and pieces of it to release it to the radio. But it worked. Mm -hmm. it, it garnered them a huge following. Uh, it reached number 13 on the Hot 100, the U.S. Hot 100, it, which was their biggest hit until uh, 1983 with Owner of a Lonely Heart, which surpassed it, and that became their biggest hit. Bruce Eater said that for millions of listeners, Roundabout, with its crisp, interwoven acoustic and electric guitar parts and very vivid bass textures, exquisite vocals, especially the harmonies, swirling keyboard passages, and brisk beat, proved an ideal introduction to the group's sound. And so as a result of hearing Roundabout on the radio, teens and college-age kids flocked to Yes. They loved the sound of that song, and that led them to discover all the previous catalog from Yes. And, and they sold, uh, you know, that, that boosted the sales of their older albums as well. 
And then they started selling out concerts all over the place too. Why do you think that um, a lot of people aren't as familiar with Yes? Um, I mean, folks like us that really like, you know, rock and roll and, and we've done a little bit of, you know, study about it and uh, we're familiar with them. But how come they're not recognized as one of the great rock and roll bands of all times outside of the rock and roll community or people that are sort of interested in rock and roll? You know what I'm saying? The average yeah. person wouldn't know them the way they might um, you know, well, obviously the Beatles or, or some of those other groups, even, you know, even like Journey or somebody. And, and they had huge hits. I mean, that album in the eighties was, you can go anywhere without listening to songs off that album. And every one of the album or every one of the songs off that album was a hit. I mean, there wasn't one of them that didn't get radio airplay. Yeah. I suspect it's because a lot of their songs were long and involved and complex and, and just didn't fit the radio very well, you know, their earlier songs. And it the wasn't earlier in, song. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until Roundabout where they cut it down where it was exposed to the masses. And then, you know, people went back and, and listened to their old catalog. If you think about uh, in uh, 1983 when they released, I think it was about 1983 when they released the 90125 album, that that had several radio-friendly songs on it. A little bit shorter, different lineup again, but shorter songs, radio-friendly, and that got huge exposure and and launched them even further into the stratosphere. Well, I'm not sure I would say that it launched them even further into the stratosphere. What I would say is it was very popular for the time, but, but that album sort of came and went, if I remember. So for 18 months, it was a huge album, and, and you know wherever you went, you heard the music, and it got great radio airplay, and now you might hear that on the radio every once in a while, but um, it came and it went, you know, uh, as far as albums go. Huge album, and I don't take away from it, because I love that album. That's one of the, one of the first albums I purchased just to keep. Because it was incredible, and even then, you know, as as popular it was with the masses, you know, you could tell that the music itself was complex and and really uh, above and beyond most of the music that you were hearing, you know, at that time. So, what, what role do you think MTV played in that whole thing? I have no idea. I don't know about Treg, but MTV kind of bypassed me just a little bit. You know, I we, we watched the Friday night videos that would play on the regular stations. But MTV, um, you know, was a station that was on cable and where Treg and I were, cable was something that was very new. So there weren't very there were very few people um at the beginning of MTV, probably for the first five or six years. There were very few people in my area that had cable and, and could watch it on a consistent basis. So I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you what kind of exposure it got from yeah, the reason I ask is because my introduction to Yes was through Owner of a Lonely Heart, mm -hmm. the video. Oh, okay. And that's how I came to know Yes. And then I went, I began there and then went backwards in time. And yeah. for me, the more, the further back you go with Yes, the richer and the more complex and the more interesting they become. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Definitely. For sure. My introduction was Leave It off of that album. Ah. I heard a buddy playing it and I just was instantly, yeah. holy crap, what is that? And yeah. You know, and and I did the same thing. Went back and grabbed their old yeah. catalog and I fell did in the love same. with it. And I and I think that I think that people of our generation probably you know were were introduced to it through that album, which was an incredible album. And and certainly, um, Treg and I were talking earlier that it was 
um, by a group that was sort of having a comeback, if you will. We call it a comeback now. That wasn't what we called it back then, but essentially that's what it was. But here you have a band that's completely on top of their game and, and they're writing some of the best stuff they've ever written. And then you go backwards and you just realize, you know, um, their catalog is eclectic and artistic and, you know, you listen to it and it just blows you away. Yeah. It's genius. Yeah. Back to your question, just one other comment in terms of why they might not have reached kind of mass appeal. It was just a funny experience I had. I took a music appreciation class in college where we would all bring in different genres of music. We'd turn off the lights and everyone would just share music. And I, and I brought in Heart of the Sunrise by Yes off the Fragile album. Oh, cool. And I was like, I couldn't wait. I was really excited to get people's reaction. And the reaction that I got was interesting. It was a lot of kind of muted confusion. <laughs> I was expecting something. Hey, this is something a little bit out of the ordinary. Maybe expose people to something that's not in their normal wheelhouse. And yeah, I think it was difficult for them to know how to interpret it because it is a little bit kind of musically unorthodox in their approach. It's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, end. Their arrangements are complex. They go a lot of different places. They weave in and out of a lot of different places within the same song. And so maybe that's kind of what put it out of reach to the masses and left more of the diehards. Oh, and I think so. Rush was a little bit like that, too. I think oh, Rush I was a little yeah, more absolutely. radio-friendly, but Rush was not you know, widely held as cool in the 70s, as I understand it. It was the diehard rockers that were into it. Yeah. Then they had that huge album in 1982, and, and you know, a lot of mass appeal there. Mm, yeah. But, you know, you Moving still... pictures? Yeah. Then you've got, then I think you still have the people that are following him now are those diehard rockers. Right. You know, certainly the people that were, you know, enamored of them in 1982, most of them aren't following Rush anymore. Yeah. Posers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Roundabout was written by uh, John Anderson and Steve Howe. Uh, Howe recalled that the track was originally a guitar instrumental suite. He said, I sort of write a song without a song. All the ingredients are there. All that's missing is the song. Roundabout was a bit like that. There was a structure, a melody, and a few lines. The first sound that you hear when the song plays, and this is obviously the full-length one, I don't know, until today, I don't think I'd ever heard the, the, the version that was cut for radio. I don't remember ever hearing it. But, I've never heard it. Because yeah. when you hear it on the radio today, you're hearing the unedited full version, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's bad. <laughs> it's... It feels like just incomplete. It just feels wrong, you know. Yeah. Can you imagine anybody cutting down Hey Jude to fit the radio <laughs> yeah, format? Yeah. Right. And I think Stairway to Heaven was one of the first kind of extended play songs uh-huh. that they didn't cut. Because, I mean, I don't know how you cut down Stairway to Heaven either. Yeah. yeah. Um, but mo- most everything up until then were, I mean, that's why the Beatles were so huge. Everything the Beatles wrote was radio worthy in the kind of late 60s pop era of the yeah. Beatles. Right, and that's what that was the standard for music back then. See, now I would have thought that long songs would have been very popular for the DJs to play because they could go take a, take a, a smoke break, break yeah. or smoke break. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet Hey Jude predates Stairway to Heaven. Did they never cut Hey Jude? Never. They didn't. Oh no. Oh, maybe maybe it, that was the first yeah. across the the border there. I'm sure it did. It predated it. Yeah. yeah. To my yeah, no- yeah. to no, my knowledge, did. they never did. And and really, how could you? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it tells a story, and and you would you would completely cut the story. And yeah. you'd think that they would fade out the end of Hey Jude, maybe, but they didn't do it. They didn't. Touch no, it. the problem with that is, is it just builds and gets better and better. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like honestly, it's kind of like the end of Comfortably Numb. 
you know, yeah. that goes on and on, but you don't want to cut it because it yeah. builds to that point and right. cutting out in between is going to ruin right, that. Right, so right. I think the same with Hey Jude. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. I, I love the way that uh, Roundabout starts. It, it's got this weird sort of vibration sound. And I learned that that was created by by playing backwards a chord on the piano. Yeah, so so if you listen to it again, yeah. It's something to that back masking. <laughs> and does Satan come out <laughs> and curse you if for you, listening right. to it? If you play it forward, it's really a ukulele. <laughs> Apparently the engineer uh, spent a lot of time, you know, playing different chords on the piano and then s- stringing the tape up and playing it backwards to get just the right sound. And it, it sounds really cool when you listen to it. It's fun. Yeah. And then it leads into that great uh, acoustic guitar uh, introduction by uh, by Steve Howe, which is just incredible. Love it. Love All that. the harmonics he uses. It's yeah, it's fantastic. Simple and genius. So then after about this 40-second uh, acoustic guitar solo, then Chris Squire's bass enters along with Bill Bruford's drums and then later Wakeman's keyboards. The song features a great bass line, incredible vocals and harmonies, intricate keyboard parts, and inspiring electric and acoustic guitar solos. It, it's really got all the elements of a great song, highlighting each of the members of the band. If you want to just ask me, give me a quintessential example of a progressive rock song, I think that would probably probably be my first pick. This could be it, yeah. yeah. yeah it goes point. in so many different directions. It shows off the instrumentation, the arrangements, interesting, the... Lyrics, I mean, everything, I think it kind of epitomizes the progressive rock movement for me. No argument from me. Let's talk a little bit about the meaning of the song. Anderson and Hal wrote this song when they were traveling in Scotland after they'd been on the road touring for about a month. They were driving through a beautiful valley where the mountains were sheer on both sides. And it was a cloudy day, and John Anderson said that they couldn't see the tops of the mountains So John Anderson commented that it looked like the mountains were coming out of the sky. And this is the source for the bridge. Mountains come out of the sky and they stand there. Hmm. So that's what he was envisioning when he he wrote that line. They came to a roundabout or a traffic circle uh, and at the bottom of the road. And within 24 hours, they were back home in London. And so Anderson uh, was looking forward to returning home to see his wife at the time. And he penned the lyrics... 24 before my love you'll see i'll be there with you Uh, so that is referring to 24 hours and i'll be home with my wife in and around the lake refers to a very famous lake just before glasgow you know the name of it loch ness loch ness Ness, Uh exactly right and uh the song also contains other images about driving through a beautiful valley uh you've got the line call it morning driving through the sound and in and out the valley And another line, along the drifting cloud, the eagle searching down on the land. And then it appears that the most of the rest of the song is just images and and rhyming words and things like that. But the central meaning of the song is this driving through this gorgeous valley in Scotland, seeing these mountains that appear to be coming out of the sky and just looking at the beautiful surroundings. It seems like these progressive rock bands... Their lyrics seem like they're trying to emulate like a J.R.R. Tolkien novel. <laughs> to me, at least. <laughs> Often that's true. Yeah. It almost seems like it belongs in Lord of the Rings to me for some reason. <laughs> right. I, I find it kind of funny that uh, that there would be a song that with roundabout in the lyrics. 
because roundabouts are so frustrating for those of us oh, yeah. that aren't <laughs> used to them. Yeah. You know, and in Washington, D.C., there are roundabouts and you can get stuck in the middle of those damn things and and you can't get out. You get in the middle and you just keep going around trying to exit. It's Big very ben, frustrating. Kids, Parliament. <laughs> exactly. Big ben, right. Parliament. <laughs> so if I were to write a song about roundabouts, it would probably be an acid, angry acid rock song. Yeah. <laughs> hey, did you go to uh, Sing Noel? I played at Sing Noel, which is a Christmas musical, right? And I was playing backup guitar for this vocalist who had this really sweet kind of a lullaby uh, Christmas-oriented song. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of it even off the top of my head. But I um, every, every year I play it, I work some kind of a rock tune into it. And so for this one, the intro, I did the whole intro to Roundabout. Oh. And it was cool awesome. because I played it and it led into the song really well. And there was just about maybe 5% of the audience that immediately when they heard the first, like the low E and then the little harmonics at the top, mm. everybody knew it was roundabout. And so about 5% of the audience afterwards, I had people coming up to me going, you were playing roundabout. That was <laughs> yes. Are you kidding me? They were expecting to hear like, you know, to have the thing descend right into the whole. That's funny. But it didn't happen. It ended up in this little Christ-like lullaby. Fantastic. So that's Roundabout. Thanks, Treg. You can listen to a clip from Roundabout on iTunes by clicking on the album link on the Rocktail Hour website. Please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong, if you have an interesting idea for a rocktail of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for the Rocktail Hour. If you think we're just lame, well, please keep that to yourself. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and rate us on iTunes. And until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. <laughs>